All right, I had to figure out, I haven't done it on a laptop in forever recording the podcast uh, audio, and eventually I'm going to figure out all the metrics of that and get it released to Apple Podcasts. Right now we're just stuck on Podbean because I can't figure out how to resize a picture of all things. And the, the Apple techs were so kind to point out my ignorance, but... Uh, that's okay, because we'll get it figured out. But uh, this, uh, unless God just drops another bombshell on me, will be the last installment of Lessons from the Desert. And uh, it's been really a, a blessing to me to, to understand when we walk through the deserts of this life that it's not God trying to bring harm to us, but in fact that God is drawing closer to us in those moments. And, and He chose the desert because it's demanding. And it builds character. And I think sometimes we don't like the things in life that are hard, that are difficult, because we, we want to be comfortable. It's natural to want to be comfortable. But there's no growth in the comfort zone. He chose the desert because it's destructive. And I can't think of a better way to describe the things of our world. If you choose to, to just immerse yourself in the culture of this world, it's destructive. And it builds an interdependence. And I... I've strayed away from that word quite a bit without fully emphasizing it, but I want you to understand that the, the kingdom of heaven, for it to grow in this world, God depends on you to spread the gospel. What a great honor that God chose you to share the gospel. He chose me. He chose you. And He relies on us as we rely on Him to give us the strength, the courage, the words to speak, the fullness of the power of His Holy Spirit moving through us. It's an interdependent relationship. He chose the desert because it's isolating. And I, I hope each of you has started to build that time into your day where it's just you and God. Where you isolate yourself away, you get away from the phone, you get away from the kids, you get away from your spouse. I know it's hard. Get away from your spouse. Uh, and spend that time with God. It reinforces the need for community. The, this morning, the hardest thing for me to do was to pick up the phone and, and ask for help because I didn't want to take our coughing, hacking, sneezing kids to Parkview and to reach out to the other churches and say, hey, can somebody cover us? And that's a hard thing to do. It hurts your ego. It hurts your pride. And immediately, I got a text back. Hey, I got you. We can cover it. Praying for your family. Community. You got to have it. And because it's a desert, it builds nations. Or in the, when we start to see the world around us as the, the desert that God has us walking through, we actively begin to take part in building the kingdom. In part five, I've been hinting about this first part 
for weeks now, and I'm just going to share just a short little bit, and it's going to be like I'm repeating myself, and that's okay. Repetition's a good teacher. But we're going to talk about Wadi and Engedi. And my kids were looking at me like, we're going to talk about spaghetti? No, Wadi and Engedi. And the Wadis we've talked about a little bit, and I'll show you a picture of one of the walls in a Wadi there in the Negev. The, the Wadis are the canyons that are cut out by the rainfall. And we don't, we, we struggle sometimes with looking at a desert and saying, oh, there's going to be rainfall in the desert. Well, we've put the word desert in where the Bible specifically put wilderness. The, the deserts that we think of, we think of the big sand dunes and all three of the deserts in Israel never developed the sand dunes. And it's largely because they have a unique ecosystem and I won't get into the nerdy science behind it, even though I could. It's a lot of fun. Uh, but there's about two months of the year that the Negev, the desert we've been looking at, gets rainfall. And we told you about the number one way to die in the Negev desert. It's not dehydration. It's not dying of heat exposure. It's dying of drowning. And I will never forget that one fact from this series, that people drown in the desert. But you look at this wall, and I want you to understand that when you're going through the Negev and you're navigating your way through these wadis, there's a lot of times that you cannot see what's up around the bend. Okay, that, that's a foreign concept to us because we live in a part of the world, we step outside, we can see for miles. Except for this morning, how many of you drove in fog to get here? If you slept a little later, it burned off some, that's Okay. But when we got up this morning, did you look out and see that nice heavy fog out there? I love and hate fog. I have a love-hate relationship with it. If I don't have to go anywhere, it's really kind of calming to me to look out there and see it. Titus kept saying, oh, we're at the end of the world. And he said it about 21 times before we left the driveway, just... It was like, come on, dude. Finally, I had to tell him to stop or I was going to spank him because I was tired of hearing it. But it's really calm and beautiful unless you have to go travel in it. Uh, one of the worst experiences of my young deer hunting life, I uh, walked out and set up and in some land out in Ellis County that it almost had a wadi of sorts to it where this canyon had been carved by rainfall. And it was a really good place to sit because the deer would walk through there. There were tracks everywhere. And I'm sitting on the edge of this canyon and this really nice looking buck starts to walk in and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm going to let him walk up a little bit closer. And when I didn't see what was going on behind me, this fog had started to roll in. And about the time I thought he's getting close enough, I'm going to get in position to take the shot this fog just covered everything. Couldn't see the deer, couldn't see my truck, couldn't see where I was, and I get disoriented. And the rest of the story is this is Thanksgiving morning. I'm supposed to be at Thanksgiving dinner at 11 o'clock. That fog didn't burn off like it's supposed to. And I walked probably four miles 
just changing directions, wandering through Northwest Oklahoma's version of Wadi because I couldn't see where I was going. Finally found my way to a fence line. I thought, all right, this is good. I'm parked next to a fence. And I followed this fence for what felt like a section. And I went the wrong way. And I tell you that story because when, when we're wandering through this life, there's a lot of times we can't see what's around the next corner because our, our life is just like a wadi. And we may get around the corner and it may be a surprise we weren't expecting in a bad way. It may be something that's in a good way. But a lot of that's because we're trying to live life on the ground floor of the wadi. And the ground floor of the wadi is what Jesus talks about. He talks about being up on the rocks, up in the elevated position of the wadi, or being down in the bottom of the wadi. If you're in the bottom of the wadi, you can't see, you can't navigate, you don't know where you are. And Jesus said it like this, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who built his house on the rock. Going back to that picture, that is a rock wall the top of that is what Jesus is describing as the place you should build your house. You should build your house in an elevated position in the wadi. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And for years, the next part of the scripture I thought was talking about how horrible sand is as a building component and you talk to carpenters and people who do construction, a lot of times they level up and, and get places ready to build with sand. It's actually a good material to put near the foundation of your home. It drains well. It maintains a level posture. It, it makes me think, Jesus was a carpenter. He grew up in a carpenter's house. He knew this. So why is he saying that? And now that I know about the wadi, it makes sense because everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. This is what it looks like when the water begins to flood off the top of a wadi down into the wadi itself. That is not an image of the desert where you think, hmm, that's in the desert right there. If you built your house in the bottom of the wadi, in the sandy, in the common everyday, if that's where you're anchoring your life is in the common, in the everyday, in the stuff of this world, when the floods of this life come, you'll be swept away. David described the wadi in Psalms 40. He said, he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon the rock, making my steps secure. I'll never read that scripture the same. Knowing that, that David was a shepherd in the Negev. David knew what it was like to be in the bottom of the wadi where after a rain, it could be a miry, muddy bog that you could walk into and accidentally get stuck because you get enough water moving through sand and, 
and loose soil in the bottom of a, of a geographical location, it can create quicksand, which watching Gilligan's Island growing up, I really thought was going to be more of a problem. I mean, 80s television in general had a lot of quicksand, did it not? I'll chase that rabbit a minute because, you know, the metaphorical quicksand of this life. How many times do we get drawn in by social media and we get stuck in the quicksand? Where we're scrolling on our phone and suddenly it's an hour later and we've missed out on life. Ouch, that one hurts. I've gotten stuck in the quicksand of a football-a-thon. Happens to me a lot in the fall. I'll own it. But Jesus came to draw us out of that and to put our feet on something firm, uh, a foundation that we could be built on. And that foundation is Him. Moving on. I need you to transition with me quickly. We're going to go to talking about Mayim Kaim, which is Hebrew for living water. Now, Pastor, we're talking about the desert. And you're talking about water? Living water? Well, living water, when it's referenced in the Bible, I want you to understand it comes from two, two places. And living water means that God had to put it there. So living water in the desert is going to come via rainfall or it's going to be a natural spring that comes out of the rock. Okay, that, that's important to us as we study the children of Israel wandering through the desert because what does God make water come out of? If you've, if you've paid attention in the Old Testament, He brings water out of the rock. And there, there's a whole lot of stuff I could chase there. I'm going to be disciplined and go on. Okay, maybe we'll come back to it in another series. But these are pictures of a place. Uh, it's a national park in Israel. En Gedi is what it's known in the native region as. And it's a, a spring of water that has never run dry. It, it has been that way as long as they have records. En Gedi has always had water. And it comes out of the rock. And there's all kinds of interesting stories about how that water feeds through. And uh, for tourists' sake, they'll tell you that, that the water that's coming out of that rock has been filtering down through the ground and coming through underwater rivers to feed it. For The water that you see today was there 2,000 years ago. Sounds a little touristy to me. Uh, I know geology. I don't think that's good geology. But you can take that or leave it. But uh, if I were trying to sell people water that was there in Jesus' day, then that, that would be the math. But that doesn't look like the desert at all, does it? I'm telling you, if I'm wandering around lost in the Negev, I'm hoping I come around the edge of a wadi and I see this place. And if I see this place, I'm probably not going to leave. But this is, this is something that gets referenced a lot through the Old Testament. Jeremiah says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, 
the fountain of living waters and hewned out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What a a heartbreaking thing that Jeremiah is describing about the children of Israel. But we could very easily say this about the church today because the, the church in its relationship with God is very superficial. We, we like to come and, and hear a message, feel good about ourselves, and go on. And, and I'm, not, I'm not picking on anybody, I promise. If, if that hits you, the hit dog yelps, okay? Go a little deeper in your relationship. If you're not feeding yourself Monday through Saturday, you cannot expect God to give you enough to eat in 40 minutes on a Sunday. And, and that's what he's talking about right here. He wants to give you that living water that refreshes you over and over and over. But we choose to try and find that refreshing, that fulfillment in other things. And, and he, he talks about it being cisterns that we've dug out ourselves. Uh, I'll tell you how to have a great golf game. This is some absolute solid advice from some of the best golfers in the world. You have to go dig your golf game out of the ground one swing at a time. And let me tell you, if you want golf to be the fulfilling part of your life, you will know exactly what a broken cistern is. Because golf treats me bad more than it ever treats me good. I hit that one shot around that says, hey, I'm a golfer, I'll come back and play again. Do you know how many shots I hit in the average round? I'm not going to say it. That's embarrassing. I'll get made fun of. So we're not going to do it. But how many other things in our life do we spend hours and hours and hours on looking for it to fulfill us? And at the end of the day, we still feel empty or broken. I mean, what a, what a powerful picture of the world today. They're out there investing their life, their time, their talent, and their energy. They're, they're spending themselves emotionally on things that in the scheme of eternity won't matter. And then when it doesn't fulfill them, they wonder why they're broken and empty. And then they turn to the next thing and then the next thing. And they just keep spending themselves over and over because they're dying of thirst for living water that no one shared with them. Psalm 118, 122 through 28. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A lot of those phrases should sound familiar, and I'll give you the tie-in in just a minute. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The, the Lord is God, and He has made His light to shine upon us. Blind the festal sacrifice with cords up on the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. The entirety of this message is about living water, about God being the source of living water. And this is a psalm that 
is dedicated to the observance of a festival known as Sukkot. Another verse we need for the tie-in here. A king will reign in righteousness and behold, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. I love how all of these things keep tying back to this path through the desert. The, the other thing about that rock that the water flowed out of that still just blows my mind is the fact that that rock followed the children of Israel through their wanderings. It wasn't go pick some random rock. It was this is the rock God led them to, and then the rock followed them. People overlook that every time they read the story, and I can't get away from it because I would be in awe of God in the kind of like, I'm going to praise you because I'm kind of scared of you because that rock has been following us for 40 years. That same rock. It's not that we're lost. That thing just follows us wherever we go. Okay, you've got this image in your mind. Let me tell you about Isaiah. Isaiah, the more I read Isaiah, the more I would not have been good friends with Isaiah. Because nobody spells out gloom and doom like Isaiah. He says, Then you shall call on the Lord, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and He will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be a watered garden like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Man, look at that. We love lists. Let's be real. We love lists because it says if we do A, B, and C, we get A, B, and C. We're human. We love lists. My kids, in their own way, love lists. Because, hey, mom, dad, you give us this list of chores we have to do to get to watch TV and play video games. We will attempt to do that list. Heavy on attempt. If you take away the yoke from your midst... Stop pointing your finger. Ooh. Ooh, man. Stop speaking wickedness. Pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. If you start getting the focus off you and putting it onto other people and taking care of other people, meeting their needs, guess what I'm going to do? God says, I'll continually satisfy your desire in scorched places. In the places you thought there could be no life, I'll bring life there. I'll make your bones strong. That gets me excited. I want to do God's will because I've, I've only broken one bone in my life. And as I get older, I don't want to break bones. But the other thing about bones, they're a spiritual term there too. The stuff that's in you, 
won't be broken. You're not going to fall apart when the world thinks you should fall apart. Because you're not going to be anchored to the things of this world. And when everything around you looks like it's dead and decaying, you're going to be a watered garden. A spring of water whose waters don't fail. The verse before that talked about lay that vestal sacrifice on the horns of the altar, this is what that looks like. And this was an item that was used as, as worship in the festival of Sukkot. It was a full week-long festival. And it's a festival that I, I appreciate more now that I've studied it because they were thanking God for the harvest and asking God for rain. If we can't, if we can't connect with that church, I'm in the wrong room. And, and this is one of the items that they would carry and they would lay on the horns of the altar it actually represented every type of crop that they would be partaking of. And it, it has another use that I'll tell you about in a minute. But the, the Hebrew where they, in that verse, they said, O Lord, O Lord, uh, is actually Hashanai, Hashanai. Or in our terms, Hosanna. Starting to ring a bell? And they, the text said, let us join in the festive procession up to the horns of the altar, speaking of this water ceremony in Sukkot. They stand in the temple, and, and that thing is called the luvla. The lulav, sorry, lulav. I'll get it right. The lulavs, they stand in the temple, and they have their lulavs, and they shout Hosanna, or God save us. God, you gave us rain last year. Give us rain this year too. They're shaking these leaves. And you get thousands, possibly millions. I don't know how many people were in Jerusalem when Jesus went to that festival. But they're shaking palm branches to where it makes the sound of rain. And the priest walks up to the, the ramp of the altar with a pitcher in his hand and everybody falls just completely silent. Can you imagine all the noise they're making? And then it just goes deathly quiet. And he tips the pitcher out, and there's nothing in it. And then he goes down the ramp from the altar, and everybody starts shaking their palms and shouting, Hosanna. And there's writing that you could hear the shouting of Sukkot miles away from the temple. And the priest would go down to the Pool of Siloam, which is also a place we read about in the New Testament. And he would fill up his pitcher and walk back to the temple. And everybody's getting louder and louder, working their way into a frenzy saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Give us rain for our harvest. And he would come back and he would go up the steps of the altar and everyone would fall dead silent again. He'd take his pitcher, and this time when he poured it, there would be water. And it would create smoke as it lands on the altar. And the flames and the fire and the smoke would represent the presence of God. And everyone would cheer and celebrate. Now, that was the festival of Sukkot over and over and over. And then Jesus 
comes to the festival of Sukkot. And on the last day of the feast, when this water ceremony is taking place, they're, they're shaking their palm leaves. And the priest begins to pour the water and it goes silent. And Jesus stood up and He cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now He said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. But can you put yourself in that temple? And you're watching the priest and all of a sudden a voice rings out of the back. If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Man, what about all the noise of our life? In the middle of all the noise of our life, I'm telling you church today that Jesus still cries out in the midst of your temple saying, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And out of you, I'm going to make a river of flowing, living water. I'm going to make that spring that doesn't run dry. I'm going to give you, everybody likes to talk about their cup overflowing. I'm telling you, God never wanted you to have a cup. He wanted you to be a well. And He's invited us to be the living water to the desert of this world around us. We've talked about it before, but on that really hot day when you're out working, is there anything that really genuinely tastes better than cold, fresh water? I know hiking through the mountains, one of my favorite things is if I come upon water coming out of the rocks. There, there's not better tasting water in the world. And if you haven't experienced that, you need to go up to Colorado this summer. And late June, early July, it, it's even coming out of the rocks on the side of the highway. You can pull over take your lousy McDonald's cup and, and go fill it up and see if it's not the best water you've ever tasted. I want you to understand that's who you're called to be to the world around you. The best water they've ever tasted. Ouch. But, but, but what if they... Give them something to drink. But pastor, you don't understand. That, that person, they've done this. To give them something to drink. The reason they're treating you that way, the reason they're acting that way, the reason they're bound up in the sin that they're in is because they're thirsty. Give them something to drink. Now the other side of that, because we're in November and and are you being thankful? Are there people in your life that have been that in Yeti, that fountain of living water for you? 
that, that place where you've went and you felt safe. Like, hey, I can be who I am. I, I don't have to be who other people expect me to be right here. I can just be me. I can be real. I can be raw. I can share my hurts. They can share their hurts with me because we're safe. Are you being that person to anyone? I want you to understand that it's not always you have to go preach a sermon to people. The most powerful moment in the book of Job is when his friends just finally sit there and shut up and sit with him in his suffering. Just be there. So they know beyond a doubt, I have a friend right here. He doesn't have to understand anything. He doesn't have to try and fix anything. But he's here. Maybe you're the person who shows up when the rest of the world's walking out because they've utterly fallen on their face. Maybe you've had that person. The challenge to you this week is start being that person to someone. But if you already have that someone in your life that they do that for you, thank them. Let them know. Thank you for being my spring in the desert. I'm not saying they physically had to save your life, but how many of you have had people step into your life at the right moment that, man, they were a lifesaver? Oh, man, I needed to see you today. I needed to hear from you today. Man, I needed that round of golf today. I needed that, that time just sitting on the side of a pond fishing today. I needed that cup of coffee with you today. I needed that smile today. And Getty's not a giant pond in the desert. It's, it's a small fountain that never runs dry. And I'm telling you, in our world, the small streams are going to make the biggest difference. That's who I want to be. Heavenly Father, thank you for today.